Women Up Radio, designed to facilitate women's empowerment, improve your career, develop your talents, incorporate your passions, achieve fulfillment and success. Hello, this is Women Up Radio, supporting Empower Women. And today we're talking about young women as change makers and how we can shape our future by advocating and sharing the best of our cultures, values and beliefs. I'm joined in the studio by my guest, Zebanu Gifford, author, human rights campaigner, change maker, philanthropist, and founder of the wonderful Asher Foundation and Centre for Youth Empowerment and Social Transformation. So, welcome to the programme, Zebanu. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for a lovely introduction <laughs> and for giving me this opportunity to talk to so many women um, associated with your programme. Oh, it's lovely. Thank the you. Ple- the pleasure is really all ours. Thank you. Can I start by speaking about your experience, your experience and your dedication to reform, to progress and to change are legendary and they really shine the light on some truly appalling situations, particularly for women. So how did you become involved And what kept you going through the challenges and some of the very tough times along the way? Um, I think, Anna, it started very early in life. I learned I could help others change the world. And I became involved in challenging and changing the status quo, which I saw as unjust and unfair to uh, the majority of people. It started very young. Uh, My parents ran a hotel in central London. And I used to be living with my grandmother in India while they came to Britain to start a new life. And I joined them as a young girl because my parents were always so busy. We never, ever had a holiday together. We were always working in the family business. And every summer holidays, I would go back to India, to Pune, which is not very far from Mumbai. And I witnessed as a young child the poverty of children just destitute on the roads, starving to death. And I decided that I could do something about it. So when I came back home, I made little flags and I stood outside the hotel and my parents didn't stop me. I mean, I think a lot of parents today would stop their children standing on the road and asking strangers for money. And I remember I collected 10 pounds. I was a, a little, very young girl and I sent it to the then Prime Minister of India, Pandit Nehru. And to everybody's surprise, he wrote me a handwritten letter thanking me and saying that if every girl in England, generous like myself, then there would be little poverty in Pune. And I realized very early on that even a little action of mine could make a difference. And I think I really, (laughs) he was a real statesman. I mean, often uh, having been a politician myself, I wonder how many politicians today would write to a unknown girl across the world and encourage her to do good maybe if there was a photo opportunity they might do but they certainly wouldn't do it like he did it and and I and that had an impact on me yeah and I think the second thing that had an impact on me as um, as a young girl I went with my grandmother around the southern states of America in the early 50s when there was terrible segregation yes and um, we were on a greyhound bus and I remember that when it, wherever we stopped, I would see the blacks get off and go to different toilets, different restaurants, even drinking fountains. And 
I felt I needed to have solidarity with them, even at that young age. I knew it was wrong, and it was wrong that they sat at the back of the bus. And I remember my grandmother was very nervous. She was Indian, and she was very timid, and she felt that, you know, we should stick by the law, and the law said that we should sit in the front with the whites. And I refused. I I said, you sit where you want to sit. I'm sitting with them. And... And that impacted, I think, you know, later in life, my work against the racist regime in South Africa. And again, I was fortunate to have a family that allowed me not to hide my personality. They didn't crush me. Yes. They just let me do what they thought was good and right. And I think that's very important. And the reason I think it's important is because later on in life, my, my eldest son, on a weekly basis, used to go and feed the homeless in central London. Yeah. And I remember one evening, I got very sort of uh, narky with him and yeah. said, look, Mark, I think you should be studying for your exams and not feeding the homeless. You've yeah. got your law exams coming up. And I remember he looked at me really shocked and said, mom, would your parents have said that to you? <laughs> and I thought, no, I was so fortunate. They just let me do what I needed to do. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's very important. And then, of course, getting into politics was quite an eye-opener for me. I really did face some dreadful times. I was a young mother, and I made political history getting elected as an Asian woman. But the detractors, especially the BNP, were they were just vile. I mean, they were bully boys, and they broke into our house and and threatened to kidnap the children and smashed up the car. and, And wherever I went canvassing, there would be whole gangs of them following me, even when the television cameras were there and would spit on me and call me a blackie and a, you know, supporting blackies and things. And it was just dreadful. <clears throat> and I remember my father saying to me, because at one stage I said, look, you know, do you think I should carry on? Because I've got young boys. Yeah. And it was a terrible strain on the whole family. Both my husband and my father said that they felt that if I gave up, I would actually be disadvantaging a whole generation of members of the ethnic minority from coming forward in public life because they would see that it was so terrifying yes and that it didn't really matter if I won or lost or whatever happened it was just being visible and audible and standing up against you know um, thugs yes racist thugs yeah yeah and and I found the interesting thing about them was that when they did telephone me and it used to be so constant and it was always tapped by the police. I remember one very clear telephone call to me where the man was yelling down the phone, but I, uh, that I hadn't fought in the war. So I explained to him that I was, uh, you know, just born after the war and that my uncle had fought in the war and a huge contribution made by the Asian community to the war effort. Yeah. And he listened to me. And then I spoke to him about Nori Nyat Khan, who was a Muslim woman who was uh, Britain's last radio operator in, in France yeah. and how she had been killed in Dachau fighting the fascists. And he said to me, it was fascinating. He said, but I never knew that. And I said, yes. I said, your education has let you down, hasn't it? And he said, yes, we've been let down. We don't know things like that. Yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, it was the education system has not taught them the contribution of minorities yes. and it's not actually also given them any attention. And yes. therefore, they feel they too feel excluded and threatened. Yes, and it was it was an eye opener for me. Yeah, it, uh, things like that. I think it's amazing. It's amazing the discrimination that people have for race as well as for men, women. You know, women moving forward. 
And a lot yeah. of the time it's because they've never been told anything else. And I think this is one of the things that I find so important is you need to educate from when children, basically, so that they can develop much more open-mindedness, but they can also develop objectivity. But in fact, that yeah. leads me on to a, another question. What do you think, particularly concerning women and discrimination, what areas do you think have progressed the most over the last 40 years or so? Well, certainly politics. Yeah. I mean, remarkably. I mean, remarkably. I mean, today we have a, a woman prime minister, a woman who leads uh, the DUP in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, Leanne Woods in Wales, Caroline Lucas, the Greens, yeah. you know, the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, and her counterpart, Cressida Dick, is, is running the Met and in and, and every field. I mean, just this week I was in the Supreme Court and there's one of the Supreme Court judges is, is Brenda Hale. Yeah. I mean, 40 years ago, that wasn't possible. Yes. And uh, it was only possible for a very few, very distinguished women. It, it wasn't open and, and masses of changes happened because of campaigning and because, you know, p- women of my generation have stuck their um, necks out and, and really um, campaigned for equality in the political system. I mean, I remember when I went for my first interview, I was told very, very clearly that no Asian woman could ever win a, a political seat. And right. I said, really? And then one uh, man, and he was a politician, so it wasn't some sort of person off the road, yeah. said to me, does your husband know you're here at this meeting? Oh, and really? I, I remember answering and saying, does your wife know you're here? I mean, you know, if a politician spoke like that today, they would be hounded out. I mean, they yeah. couldn't talk like that anymore. Yes. So things have changed. And there is a right across all political parties, they realize that they have to have a balanced representation of people in power. Yes. Um, I think so. That's one change. I think the second change is the understanding of the importance of the female principle. So people realize that you just can't have one token woman. You, you've got to have at least a third. You've got to have a proper balanced membership of whatever the committee is or whatever the organization is. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think the third thing is, um, because I've been so involved in the field of development, that many of the, the international organizations and large charities and, and philanthropists are realizing that they have to invest in women's education, women's health, because it is the women that are impacting on the communities. Yes. So the, the best way to use their money and their resources is to target women. Exactly. And I think this is now very, very evident in the international field. Yes. And, 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 and I think that, um, you know, we have come a long, long way. I remember my husband used to always say that they should make a cabinet post for me as Minister of Women's Complaints. <laughs> and I used to laugh and say, we've got a lot of complaining to do. But I must say that things have improved and maybe very soon, maybe in the next 50 years, people like me will be out of a job (laughs) or let's hope. That would be good news. Yes. And I know also you strongly believe in young women as change makers. So what do you see as being really pivotal to the development of the next generation of women leaders? I think it's to do with self-confidence. I think... um, they have extraordinary gifts 
mm-hmm. um, many women. And that's one of the things that surprised me when I, some years, about 10 years ago, I got a NESTA fellowship. NESTA is the National Endowment of Science, Technology and Arts. Yeah. And how I used it was to interview over 300 inspirational women from around the world, from 60 countries. And some very distinct things came out from the interviews. And one was that I was surprised that so many of these very high-powered women lacked self-confidence when they were young. And they said that if they had had somebody to mentor them or somebody to spend time to tell them that they were so good, they would have done it quicker. I spent a great deal of time at the Asher Center where we train young people and we allow them to develop themselves. Yeah. to give young women the space and the opportunities to become leaders. Mm-hmm. We give them a platform to shine, and I think that's really important. And also to be relaxed in their own style. Because my generation, we really had to be, inverted commas, honorary men. We dressed to a code. We had to speak with, we had to lower our voices. We, we couldn't show any emotions because we might be thought as hysterical or harridans. Yeah. And there was, there was a sort of code of behavior for us. And I think that I think women are more confident today of being valued and being able to express our innate sense of community and our wish to cooperate with other people and 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 having creative thinking, thinking out of the box, not having to think in the box. Yeah. I think people in my generation were a little bit nervous to do that. Yeah. Because we had to fit in. Yes. And I think now women don't have to fit in. They they they're very privileged, I think. And I think the main thing is to trust them that, yes. you know, they will shine. But if, if they're wrapped by doubts about stepping out of the box, about breaking the mould, mm-hmm. how can they find the inspiration and the strength to, to keep going and to follow that route? Because it can be very difficult. I mean, you know yourself from, from everything yes. you've done that's really out of the box. So for normal people like me, um, <laughs> when we have doubts, what would you advise? Where do you think we can find the inspiration? I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a person that's very enamored with these pumped up superwomen. I yeah. think that I, I think, you know, um, a bit like nature, we should be a little bit patient with ourselves and, and in the right time, things happen. Yes. And to really enjoy life. Yeah. I, I feel that, including myself, we work so hard and we strive so hard, but sometimes we missed out on fun. I mean, I want, I want to tango. That's an, I, I, I want to learn how to tango. I don't know why. I just love dancing. Yes. And um, recently I was on a book tour in America. And as a surprise gift for me in Washington, I was making a public speech. And then after the speech, they organized for me to learn tango in front of everybody oh, wow. as a, a, a way of training people uh, in personal development. And there was this, this, this uh, German gentleman, an English woman from Bristol, and they were going around America using Argentinian tango to teach us how to be able to work heart to heart. Because most people, they said, dance thinking they have to look into the other person's eyes. Yes. But what is important is heart to heart. And I did the dancing like that and I felt transformed. Oh, wonderful. I felt transformed. It was just, it was fantastic. And I thought, what a out of the box way to train people in leadership. In, yeah. in, in, and, and I remember saying to the, to the trainer, the dancer, he was fantastic. 
and he was in the corporate world himself. He was very high up in the corporate world. I said to him, oh, it's so wonderful to have a man leading me so beautifully because it's easier to dance. And he said, it doesn't have to be a man that's a leader. He said, stop saying it's a man. And I thought, even I've been brainwashed. Yes. But it's it's, it's funny how we use terminology even. And it was was wonderful. It was was an eye-opener for me. And I think there must be a lot of ways that we can uh, teach thoughtful leadership Yes. And a new way of doing things, different way of approaching the world. Yeah. And this was just, just such a lovely present for me. You know, oh, it was done yeah. personally for me. And yeah. what's more lovely than that? And it sounds wonderful. It and was. And one of the other things I, uh, I do when I train young people is I, I tell them to write their obituary. And they always get very amused by that because they're young. And they always ask me, you know, what's your obituary? And I said, you can't do more than two lines because of people's brain span. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be very short. And mine is to empower the powerless and to enlighten the powerful. And I say to them, write just two sentences or a sentence of what you want to be known for. What is your special gift? What do you feel that you can do? And then on your birthday, look back at that every year. Maybe it's something different. Maybe you've grown. You, don't, it, you know, it's holistic. It doesn't have to be the same. Yeah. And see whether you've actually contributed to the world in some way. Yes. Have you made it a better place? Because I tell them that you will have to meet your maker on the day of judgment. Yeah. And your maker will say to you, you know, what have you done? He won't look at your bank account. Yes. <laughs> he, will, he will look at the happiness or the joy or yeah. the sorrow that you've brought other people and you will have to experience that yourself. So you might as well make sure that you have a good life. And that you bring joy to other people. I don't think young people are taught that at school. No. No, they're taught that they've got to be, they've got to be successful. They've got to make money. They've got to get good jobs. They've got to get their degree. But at the end of the day, looking back on life, and now I'm, I'm an old lady and I'm a granny, I look back on it and I think, well, what were the turning points? The turning points were people that you've been kind to or been grateful to or who had through the the universe had come to help you and you'd been done something nice for them yes and they even if it was 20 years later or 30 years later turned up and it transformed your life yes yeah. and when people look at life like that I, I think it's more enjoyable yeah for everybody definitely i know and you you once said one of your quotations if you need to change paths you can give yourself permission to just backtrack and try a new, more fulfilling one. And that's something I agree with so much because fulfillment is so much more important than anything material and what you do for others. But there seems to be too many barriers put in our way by, well, close-minded individuals or organisations and they try and block our freedom or they just they're closed to the idea of inspirational creativity for achieving this, whether it's social or professional. So how do you think we can open the doors to a more fulfilling and free-minded future on all levels? I don't think you can change other people till you yourself an example and change things. So I I think that's really important. Uh, There's too many people who want other people to do things for them or change. And I remember in politics, I 
had the privilege, I should say, of taking over the chair of the community relations panel from Lord Avebury. Mm -hmm. um, it, was a, it was a proportional representation vote. So I think that I was the only woman on the committee. And I, I, I still believe that every man voted for himself and then voted for me second. And he went to the second ballot and I got chosen as the chair. And I decided that I wanted half the committee to be made up of women and members of the minorities. Yes. And I asked the committee and the committee didn't think it was appropriate because the people I was suggesting didn't have the right CVs. And I explained, how do you get the right CVs unless you're asked to join things? Exactly. I mean, how does it happen? You know, it's a, a chicken and egg situation. So what I did was I used the chairman's action and I dissolved the committee and then uh, co-opted on people I thought would be good. And many of those women today are high flyers. I so I, I think you're, I think if you talk the talk, you have to walk the walk yes. and do what, what you say. So if you talk about diversity and you talk about empowerment yeah. of women, you've got to make sure that when you have power, you use it. Yes. So I think that's number one important. Yeah. I think number two is the economic power that women need, because I think often women are stifled and mistreated because they have no economic power. Mm -hmm. And an ex an, uh, to give you another example, I was asked by the elephant family to donate money for the preservation of Indian elephants. And I explained that I really wasn't interested in that, but I would be interested in human animal conflict. So yeah. I went with the director, Ruth Powis, and we went to Dehradun in near the Himalayas. And we were taken to the Gujar community. Um, and they were displaced by elephants and we were given a platform to talk and they knew that we were coming with money. So the whole area was full of these Muslim gentlemen that were sitting there. Yeah. And I asked them, where were the women? Yeah. And they said, oh, the women don't come. The women aren't the decision makers. So I said, really? So I said, well, I'm not really interested in who you think is a decision maker. Yeah. I, I want to speak to the women. Yeah. So uh, after a lot of argy-bargy, the women were brought into this sort of broken down shack yeah. and that I had the doors closed and I asked them what would, what would they want? I mean, I asked them because I don't know what they want. And I said, do you want sewing machines? And they said, we don't sew, we don't want sewing machines. What we want is a mobile clinic that comes at least once a week or once a month to see us. Yeah. We have no medical help. Yeah. And we would like to own a buffalo. So I said, why do you want to own a buffalo? And they said, because the buffalo was the economic power in the community. Whoever owned a buffalo had wealth. So I personally paid for the first buffalo and I named it Buffalo Bill. And they didn't get the joke and I couldn't stop laughing. And then I went back to England and I fundraised and we ensured that every woman who headed a family owned a buffalo. And when we went back to the community five years later, the whole power structure had changed, oh, completely really? changed. Yeah. The women were able to talk and come out and be equal with the men because they had economic power. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important, you know, I, I, I say you can, you know, go to conferences as the buffaloes come home and you yeah. can carry on talking about the empowerment of women. But yeah. until you actually do it, then nothing happens, nothing changes. It's just talk. Yeah. And well, I really think that to get change, you need involvement and you need to make it happen. You are listening to Anna Letitia Cook at Women Up Radio. 
you've campaigned endlessly for human rights and also you were director of anti-slavery international and you got you've got so many awards you got international woman of the year award and the nehru centenary award for humanitarian work and for championing the rights of women and children and minorities so in the last decade what advances do you think have been made and is progress continuing globally or is it only in certain areas I think the main thing that's happened has been the awareness of the problems we face. Yeah. I think because of the media, television, radio, uh, internet, I think people are constantly being made aware of, of inequalities and disasters and what's happening in the world. Yeah. So people are now talking about poverty, they're talking about prejudice, they're talking about global pollution, they're talking about the dreadful inequalities all over the world. And I think that's really, I think that's really important mm-hmm. um, as a first step. So, you know, for Oxfam to put out um, a leaflet saying, you know, 85 people own the same amount of money as 3.5 billion people. But when you see those figures, you realize there's something very wrong. Yes. Uh, when, when the media goes on praising a man in India for building a house that costs the same in, in billions of dollars as the whole GDP of Somalia, you think, well, this man should be ashamed of himself. I've been involved with the Anti-Slavery International as director. And, you know, people don't believe me when I tell them there are more slaves today than ever in the transatlantic slave trade. And that there are more children in bonded labor than the population of the UK. Really? So people, yes. And people, when you tell people this and, and they're the facts from the UN, then people sit up and they, they realize that there is something wrong and they, you know, that they've got to, they've got to move yes. uh, and they've got to stop this because it's just not right. It's not fair and it's not right. Of course, I, I mean, there are parts of the world where there's terrible violence against women and pedophilia and terrorism and all the rest of it. Because but I think it's coming into the open so people know. Yes. Now, it's up to individuals if they want to change that, if they want to change the status quo, if they want to stop sickening greed, if they want to stop environmental degradation, cruelty to children, and the list goes on and on and on, then they themselves can make an impact. And it's really up to them to do it. And it's happening. I think my generation has really let the world down. Really? And I, yes, I do. I think, I think we've been, our value system, our, our moral compass has gone wrong. Yeah. I think that we valued success, what, whatever success yes. is, God knows what it is. Yeah. And we valued people making money and we valued, I think, the wrong things. Yes. I, I, I think what really needed is this, this feeling that together we can change it and we can, we can collaborate. Yes. And that, you know, if there is this kind of cruelty that's going on in many parts of the world to women and children, then we can make our voices heard and it does make an impact. Yes. Believe me, when you write letters and you campaign, it makes a difference. Yeah. I remember during the anti-apartheid campaign, we campaigned at the supermarkets to stop buying South African fruits. We campaigned that any bank that you know, was operating in South Africa, we would boycott them. And Barclays really took it very seriously. And it did make a difference. Yeah. It made a lot of difference. So even little actions like boycotting fruits, yes. um, if it's done with the good intentions and the intentions must be pure, that it does have an impact. 
Yeah. It has a great impact. And the world is a nicer place. Yes. The world is a better place. And whenever we, whenever there is things, I think, that go wrong, I think what is happening is that, that it awakens people. It energizes people to do the right thing. Because yes. I found throughout my life that basically the majority of people are very, very good human beings. And they don't actually know how to express their goodness. And if you give them an opportunity, you see the most remarkable things happen. Yes. Coming back to you in particular, one of your greatest achievements is the Asher Centre and Foundation, which is, yes. from what I understand, it's multicultural, multi-faith, and it's there to overcome prejudices and the biases that exist today by uniting people in understanding um, and creating and developing opportunities for youth empowerment and for social transformation. Am I right? Yes. Can you tell me more about this and how and why you created the Asher Centre and the opportunities that it's giving to youth worldwide and to our future? Well, how I created the Asher Centre is a blockbuster. <laughs> and uh, you will have to read my biography, An Uncensored Life by right. Frida Master, which is published by HarperCollins, because yes. it would be impossible to tell you on radio. Okay. It, was, it was a harrowing experience, absolutely harrowing. I took the Millennium Commission to court because I thought that the way the lottery money was being spent was wrong. Yes. We were promised £10 million, and then um, we were turned down, even though uh, I'd spent half a million pounds on doing a feasibility study for them. Yeah. Um, which they liked. It was simply because the dome had then gone pear-shaped and all politicians didn't want anything to do with multicultural, multi-ethnic centers. Uh, but I, I, lost, I lost the court case. Mm -hmm. But the Millennium Commission somehow miraculously found £30 million. Pounds, and um, that was earmarked for ethnic minority organizations. Yes. And they asked me to reapply. And I did reapply, but I knew, having been a politician, how politicians operate, and uh, I knew that we'd be blackballed. And of course, everybody got some money except for us. Really and that really put steel into me because then I was more determined yeah. that we'd have uh, the vision of the Asher Center. Yes. And what the vision is really, and it has transpired, is um, a, a sacred place, which is extraordinarily beautiful because I believe in beauty. Yeah. I don't see why anybody, let alone young people, should be condemned to ugliness so it's a very beautiful place in the forest of dean and i remember putting in the feasibility study that i wanted at least three cherry trees and um, gods must be laughing at me because they gave me a whole forest <laughs> and it's so beautiful and the whole point of the place is where young people can come and mix across communities and cultures and faiths learn about their own traditions about themselves but other people's traditions, and actually see how foolish the old prejudices are. Yes. Uh, we, don't, we can think outside the box. We can, we can live differently. We don't have to live like we lived before, hating our neighbors. Yes. And we work in every country of the world, but our great successes are with the, the Jewish and Arabs of Israel, bringing them together and working through art and theater. Yes. South Africans working again through art, theatre and sustainable living and a play that was produced by the South Africans was taken to Nelson Mandela in his home. Oh, really? um, we, we, we work through 
training them in thoughtful leadership. Yes. Um, what is leadership? Um, wh- how do you want to change the world? How do you actually work with other groups to make it happen? Yes. So we worked a great deal with the people from the Balkans yes. who again uh, have got old hatreds. That is a, a part of the work that I enjoy the most. But we do all sorts of things. We train them in interfaith understanding. Every year we have um, postgraduate Indian girls from disadvantaged backgrounds yes. who come for three weeks and we train them in entrepreneurship is what they want. Yes. And again, giving them self-confidence so they don't have to feel because they come from a poor background that they aren't equal to anybody else yeah. because they are. Yeah. And they come, usually they turn up and they're very modest and shy and they won't even look you in the eye. Yeah. And at the end of the three weeks, they, they, they're transformed. The new human beings, you can see it, the confidence they have in themselves. And, and they go back to India and they do the most extraordinary things. And I always say to them that you've had this huge privilege yeah. and you have to now put something back into the bank for us. So yes. you've learned about people with special needs. You've gone and seen how they live in England and the sort of really groundbreaking work we're doing with special needs. Yeah. Uh, and they do that in India. They work in prisons. Uh, they work in old people's homes. Yeah. So it's an investment of ours in time and giving them personal attention. And I find that personal attention is very necessary. If somebody really feels that you give them attention and time and you care for them, yeah. then they do the most extraordinary things. Yes. And, and, and the other thing is we don't put pressure on them. Yeah. So they haven't got to produce an exam result or do anything. They've got time to reflect and do it at their time. Yes. And, and if you trust that they will do good, they do. They always do. They always come up with the goods. But yes. you have to have that deep trust in other human beings that they will do the right thing. Just recently, there's, uh, we have this book where they write comments. And, and one chap from Estonia wrote, my soul rocks at Asher. And I thought, how lovely. I couldn't think of a more lovely thing to happen at the Asher Centre. That's wonderful. Mm. I have a final question for you. I know you believe that each one of us can step out of the box and we can have the, the courage and the power to create the world that we dream of. So what advice or recommendations would you give to women around us about how they can become the change makers of today and tomorrow? Um, I always say um, in my speech, especially to young people, a great deal of talent is lost to the world for a want of a little courage. And I think courage is is what we all need um, to do what we want, really want to do, what gives us joy. And I think when something gives you joy, then you do it very successfully. And I suppose I should end with the words of Churchill who said courage is the first of the human qualities because it is the quality that guarantees all the others. Now, you might agree with that or disagree with it, but I think courage is a very important aspect of our life. And when we have courage, we can undertake great deeds. I agree totally. Thank you so much, Zebanu. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. We'd like to thank our guest, Zubanu Gifford, author, human rights campaigner, change maker, philanthropist, and founder of the Asher Foundation and Centre, for sharing her expertise on young women as change makers, 
and how we can shape our future by advocating and sharing the best of our cultures, values and beliefs. I'm Anna Letitia Cook. You've been listening to us at Women Up Radio. Thanks also to Meryl Guzel and Laura Martinez of UN Women's Empower Women for the wonderful work that they do to advance the case for women's equality today. And thanks very much to all of you, the listeners. I hope you've enjoyed hearing Zabanu today. Please send in any questions or feedback to us. Also, you can find our social media and contact details through our website, womenupradio.com. Women Up Radio, designed to facilitate women's empowerment, improve your career, develop your talents, incorporate your passions, achieve fulfillment and success.